My name is Arif Katra, and I'm the host of Voices Worth Listening To. This is a podcast dedicated to sharing stories about diversity, stories that I hope will make you think and reflect on how we experience each other's differences. My goal is to encourage change in our individual perspectives and in the ways in which we live and work together. Today's podcast is about marginalization caused by and within organizations. Let's get started. As a Muslim, after 9-11, my life changed forever. To this day, every time I hear of a terrorist attack, my heart clenches and I pray, God, please don't let the perpetrator be Muslim. It's not because the bulk of domestic terrorists are Muslim. In fact, religious-based terrorism makes up only 15% of all terrorist attacks. But when you are Muslim, the data doesn't matter. What matters is the fear you feel when you hear the words radical Islamic terrorist. This term butchers your faith. It disregards your beliefs, but most insidiously, it begins the process of your marginalization. Marginalization is frightening. You feel like you have no power. You feel like justice is not something you are likely to receive. It feels like people think you are less. The consequence? You doubt yourself and your beliefs. Marginalization robs you of your voice and your sense that you matter. From my perspective, marginalization is a big part of what is driving the hundreds of protests across the globe since the murder of George Floyd and the recent shooting of Jacob Blake. These pivotal events caused a reawakening among all people around the globe that racism, bias, and segregation are alive and well in modern society and that various categories of people continue to be marginalized, even in 2020. Protesters in democratic societies play an important role. A protester's job is to highlight, it's to create strategic noise, and to make bold asks of society. And what makes up society? You and me. That is, individuals, and the organizations we live, work, play, and pray in. The change being called for by protesters in the streets today is directed towards organizations. But most organizations are resistant to change. They don't change as a matter of practice, as a matter of good management, or because they reflect on who they are. Most organizations have to be compelled to change. Think about an organization where you spend a lot of time. Maybe it's your church. Maybe it's your employer. Three forces can compel that organization to change. Force number one, the beneficiaries of the work of that organization. Think congregation if you're thinking about your church, or think customers if you're thinking about your company. Force number two, the individuals that lead that organization. Think leadership team. 
and force number three, the individuals that work or participate in that organization. Thank you. Let's talk about force number one, customers. Many of you may have seen recent Instagram accounts such as Ivy at the Margins or Stolen by Smith. Here, you find postings from students describing their diversity and inclusion experiences at Canada's top business schools, the Richard Ivy School of Business and Queen's University. The creation of these accounts was inspired by an Instagram page called Black at Harvard Law. It was first. I'm going to read you a posting from Black at Harvard Law that is an example of a customer, aka student, showing how deeply they've been marginalized by the institution. My legal writing teacher once gave me and my white partner different grades for the same assignment. I tried to challenge him on it, but he came up with an excuse for why we deserved different grades even though we turned in the same work product together. Later, in good faith, I asked him what about my writing needed to improve in order to get a better grade, and suggested that maybe I wasn't accustomed to legal writing and thinking because no one in my family is a lawyer. He responded to suggest instead that the difference may be natural or biological. I was one of two black people in his class. Wow. As an educator, this story is devastating, but also devastating for the institution, and most importantly, devastating for the student. Clearly, there isn't enough room at Harvard and at the other schools to call out this behavior so beneficiaries do it publicly, and it works because Ivy, Queens, and Harvard are having to change. It is not as though these institutions have never thought about equity. Of course they have. But when beneficiaries stand up to the tune of thousands, it's like putting your foot on the gas pedal and quickly things begin to happen. Individuals who have felt marginalized by these organizations forced the organization to give them a platform because they put their reputations on trial. The question I ask of organizations is, does it have to be this way? This is a journey filled with pain and suffering for customers who feel they've been mistreated, for staff who may feel frustrated or embarrassed for what is being said publicly, and for leaders who are being openly called out for not paying attention. So what's the solution? The solution is not that complicated. A few years ago, I bought a used car from a Lexus dealership in Ottawa, and I negotiated pretty hard. The salesperson, in his comments to me, linked my frugality to my being Indian, and then laughed, saying, you're a good negotiator. It felt awkward. After taking my check, they asked me to make sure I give them a five-star rating should Lexus head office send me a survey. The survey came, but no one asked me how inclusive my experience was. There was no room to share. Maybe if places like Harvard and Ivy 
asked their students not only about their postgraduate salaries, but also whether their experiences were inclusive and empowering, they wouldn't have to suffer their reputation blows. Asking an alum whether a professor treated them in a way that was racist or sexist is informative, but that ship has sailed. Instead, organizations have to create real-time opportunities where issues can be voiced and solutions implemented. Force number two, you. Changing your organization often starts with you standing up and pointing out injustices, but it's risky. So let me share a very interesting story about that risk. It starts with a Muslim professor who went to work for a private, faith-based Christian university. The professor, let's call him Farhad, had made it past all the interview hurdles. The last step in Farhad's recruitment process was to meet with the provost. In case you're wondering, that's who all the deans report to. Farhad was told that the subject of the discussion with the provost would be, how do you live your faith? Some of the faculty offered their advice before the meeting. Farhad, this is a make-or-break moment. During the meeting, Stick to the themes that everyone believes in. Unity, goodwill, generosity. You get the point. In speaking to Farhad, he said to me, I think it was code for don't be too overtly Muslim. But I wasn't sure what that meant. The meeting with the provost went well. He too wanted to stick to the sacred themes of motherhood and apple pie. But this was going to be Farhad's home. Before the meeting ended, Farhad asked, why do you want to hire a Muslim? You don't have any Muslims on faculty. The provost looked to Farhad and said, We're turning a corner. The faculty at our school don't represent the diversity that is present in our student body, and we want to change that. Farhad said to me, he called this his Rosa Parks moment. Fast forward eight years. Like most people, Farhad doesn't constantly contemplate diversity and inclusion. But after getting tenure, it did dawn upon him that although the provost spoke of turning a corner, in the last eight years, almost nothing related to diversity or inclusion had changed. Farad began to wonder if, in fact, he was a token hire. And the truth is, he may very well have been, you know, a token. Talented, obedient, knowledgeable earnest, and naive. Farad's department was recruiting a new faculty member, and now, as a tenured faculty member, he was on the recruitment team. After reviewing hundreds of applications, the team identified the top three, and it was time to invite them to campus. Before I go on, there's something you should know about Farhad. He struggles to let sleeping dogs lie. See, at the school, there existed a bit of an urban legend. They didn't hire Hindu faculty. So Farhad called his department chair and asked, Tom, the hiring committee has worked really hard, and our top three candidates are amazing. But Tom, I have a sneaking suspicion that two of them may be Hindu. That's not going to be a problem, is it? 
Silence. Farad says, are you there? Slowly, Tom responds, I don't know. He sighs. I think this may be a problem. Farad says, you're kidding, right, Tom? Again, silence. Farad continues, this is crazy. I'm calling the provost. A conversation between the provost and Farhad ensues over email. And here is the outcome. The provost writes, Dear Farhad, I appreciate your honest and forthright questions about our faculty hiring policies and expectations. We do not have a written policy that says a Hindu or Buddhist cannot be a faculty member. I am aware of at least one such faculty member at the undergraduate college hired in an earlier time. However, Tom is more or less correct in the sense that our regents have become more insistent in recent years that tenured faculty members practice their faith through belonging to a community of faith. Given the nature of some religions, involvement in a local community of faith is sometimes difficult to demonstrate. So de facto, we tend to hire only practitioners of the Abrahamic faiths. Is such a position reconcilable with a concept of hospitality? I think it is. We have made it pretty clear that we are an institution of a certain type. We don't tend to knowingly hire animists, pantheists, practitioners of Wicca, or nature religions, theosophists, or Scientologists, to name a few. Farhad pointed out to the provost the clear hypocrisy of recruiting students from across Asia to benefit from high international student fees. They didn't all espouse Abrahamic faith traditions. No response. Farhad was devastated. It was wrong. It was biased. And it was racist. What can we learn from Farhad's experience? Changing wrongs in an organization almost always falls to those who work within that organization. But this is risky. Could you stand up and call out bias, prejudice, or racism if you were your family's primary breadwinner and if you had two kids whose college tuition depended on your salary? You could, but it would be risky. And most of us who have not stood up in the face of injustice within our organizations can relate to this risk. But what about the risks associated with not standing up? Farhad was the only tenured Muslim professor at the school, and one of a few tenured minority faculty. When no one stood beside him against the blatant racism expressed by the institution, he left. So did one of his colleagues, a mother and a tenured female professor, also a minority class in this organization. Now, both were award-winning professors. Both had stellar research papers, and both had relationships with their students well beyond graduation. So who suffered? The students. But Farhad standing up didn't change the institution. It didn't open the institution's eyes to the systems that were marginalizing people. Why? Because no one from the majority stood with Farhad. 
he stood alone. See, if only one person stood up and went city to city protesting the murder of George Floyd, nothing would be highlighted, and nothing would change. Within an organization, when one person stands up against injustice, it's ignorable. Standing up is not a single-player sport. If Farhad and his colleagues went into the provost's office together and said, this is wrong. Your position against hiring someone who practices Hinduism or Buddhism is not only inaccurate, but racist. And that has to stop. Well, now it's hard to ignore. Where customers or beneficiaries can incite change, individuals within an organization must stand up together to create change. This not only reduces the risk, it changes the power dynamic. Force number three. Leaders are the only ones who can truly orchestrate change. In the last five years, my life has changed completely. One of the happiest and most significant changes has been the birth of my two nieces and my nephew. Today, they're all under the age of five. I dote on them far too much. My brother, on the other hand, he's adventurous. He's always getting them to try new things. When we're all together and we're trying something new, that's usually outside my own comfort zone, and I see the kids become apprehensive, I put out my hand, and they immediately hold it. And I say, it's going to be fine. We're in this together. And immediately, their demeanor changes. Well, that's not just true of five-year-olds. It's true of all of us. It is the responsibility of leaders to hold the hands of those that are being marginalized within and by their organization. How? Reach out to those individuals. Ask them for their input. Not in large groups and simply via committees made up of different minority groups, but personally and firsthand. Don't diminish their experiences. Hear them. Hear all of them. As a leader, you need to put your hand out, directly and personally, and take the enormous amount of time it takes to say, we are in this together. Protesters, they highlight the need for change. Employees, they stand up against wrongs from the inside and should never have to do it alone. Leaders, they put their hands out and commit to taking responsibility and then solving those problems together. If you follow U.S. politics, Attorney General Bill Barr recently said he doesn't believe in the existence of systemic bias. I think he might be wrong about that. He went on to say that he doesn't believe Racism is built into government systems. I think he might be right about that. Systems may produce racist or biased outcomes over and over again. But systems don't sustain themselves or change themselves 
we do that. And when we ignore our personal responsibilities related to diversity and inclusion, we become the systemic bias that sustains marginalization. I hope you'll join me again in a few weeks by subscribing to the podcast. And I especially hope that today, the time spent listening to this podcast made you feel that this was a voice worth listening to. If you would like more information about my work in diversity and strategy, please visit my website at www.strat-ology.com. That's S-T-R-A-T-O-L-O-G-Y dot com. The music in this podcast is from the Toronto Tabla Ensemble. To find out more, visit torontotabla.com. That's the word Toronto and the word tabla, T-A-B-L-A dot com.